At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, welcome to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is Jean Lewis joined by Drew Lerner. If you have not already, please subscribe to the SMW podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, today's a different kind of episode because it's uh, not up to the minute. We're taping December 20th, uh, so a week ago, uh, as of when this episode will actually be broadcast. Uh, and we have a special episode-long interview with two industry professionals, Ed Desser and John Kozner. They know everything about the industry inside and out because they've been part of the industry inside and out. And we talked to them about some of the hot button issues in 2023 and how they might be manifest in 2024. So here is that. All right. Well, we're very happy to be joined today by two very knowledgeable sports media consultants, ex-executives who worked in the NBA for many years, were very much involved in the NBA's uh, media rights and negotiations. Uh, very knowledgeable on that subject. So, of course, with the NBA's new media rights negotiations coming up, I can't think of two better folks to speak to than John Kozner and Ed Desser. Uh, so, uh, John and Ed, like I said, uh, very much involved with the NBA. Ed was uh, reading from his website here, the chief negotiator for all NBA and WNBA national media agreements during his time in the commissioner's office at the NBA. And uh, John Kozner, uh, led digital media at ESPN for many years as well, and also worked with the NBA. So uh, very much involved in the golden years of the NBA, the David Stern era, when it seemed like the league could do no wrong. John and Ed, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Happy John. To be thank here. you, Drew. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and jump into the topic that I think, if you're going to bring two folks with this much knowledge about the NBA and its media rights, to a podcast and the NBA is negotiating new deals. I can't think of a better place to start. Well, this new media rights deal for the NBA, the exclusive negotiating window starts in March. And the question right now is how is the NBA going to be able to get to the $75 billion number that was floated to CNBC? Can they, at the very least, if they can't get there, double or triple their existing rights fees? Uh, John or Ed, what is the overarching uh, expectation that you have for what the NBA is going to be able to garner in this next set of negotiations? Uh, I'll, I'll give it a, a shot, John. I think, um, first of all, I don't particularly care for the, uh, you know, for the number game where uh, somebody plugs a number and, you know, it all is dependent upon that. I think there's, there's much more to these deals than the dollars, uh, though admittedly the dollars are very <laughs> material. And, uh, you know, hugely important for the teams and ultimately the players. Um, but I think that one needs to look at these deals, both in terms of the dollars and in terms of how it allows the NBA and, and other leagues to connect with their fan bases. And, and that's, you know, that's something that in the old days where we were able to take for granted um, you know, you put your games on TNT or on ESPN or on ABC or before that on NBC. And, you know, you were guaranteed full circulation and and broad audiences if you had an attractive product. And and there's no question that the NBA has a very, very attractive product. It's only gotten better over the years. And uh, and it's a, a highly coveted audience. Um, the issue becomes in today's world getting uh, getting connected with those audiences as they are increasingly not connected to cable and satellite. Um, some of them may or may not even have uh, streaming services that they subscribe to. Um, you know, increasingly younger people are getting their content via YouTube and uh, and and Twitch. 
Um, and so it's a changed uh, environment that that I think defies the traditional metrics and requires, you know, a, a very sage um, uh, process to uh, to to get to a a conclusion. And I have no doubt that the NBA will do that and do it in spades. The uh, the the question is just how do you define success? And you know, I'm not a big fan of just saying, well, it's a it's a double, it's a triple, it's a this, it's a that. I mean, this is this this is about how the next decade of new NBA fans uh, is entertained. I I just would add, and this has kind of been a theme throughout Ed and my career, is people keep realizing just the intrinsic value of sports. And from the early 80s until today, that value has only increased. So just, just stepping away from the NBA for a second, you know, sports, you have to watch it live. It's content that's not replicable. As a matter of fact, we would argue it's the only content that unifies people. People watch habitually. Sports is evergreen, and yet it's different every year. Um, Ohio State and Michigan played this incredible this incredible game last month, and it was the 119th time they played, and 19.1 million people watched. You know, the very best television shows are generally done after seven years max. So people, when you take an asset like the NBA in a, in a current environment where there's almost unlimited video options for people, some of them are paid, some of them are free, it's a differentiated product. As everything moves to streaming, as things move to direct-to-consumer, individual months matter in a way that they didn't say earlier in my career. When I worked at ESPN and ESPN was, and I believe it still is the highest paid um, pay television network, you, you and Drew would subscribe to cable TV. You'd have a contract that would go a year or two. And those contracts uh, on the other side had guaranteed rates to programmers with locked in increases. And so, so long, if you were running a pay television network, so long as what you did was representable and good, you know, you were going to not only continue to get paid, you were going to get paid higher and higher sums of money. A big chunk of that for these sports TV networks then went to live sports. Half of that went to the players and it was a golden model. Now, when all of a sudden, almost all of these programmers are in the month to month churn business. A six-month NBA regular season is just a bigger asset than people might have thought in the past world. You know, it's a reason, it's a reason to subscribe, it's a reason not to churn. So um that's that's one set of big factors. I think the other thing is, and you know, John, you referenced like the exclusive negotiating period. I'm sure that. Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, as the incumbents will have a big number that if they chose to spend it, they could keep the package that the two of them share today. It's going to be a lot more money, presumably, than what they're paying now. If they choose not to, but still want to stay in, then you get to the essence here, which is that we believe there are multiple other companies who want in. Those include Comcast, NBC. Those include Amazon. Those include, we believe, on some level of interest, YouTube, Google, and Apple. And there could be others. Netflix, Netflix, we believe, has, has had actual conversations about the in-season tournament and a documentary series as well. So the, the real crucial factor to whatever value is derived here tends to be competition for the rights. That keeps the incumbents honest, and that contributes to, to more value. The last thing I'd say is we're in this fascinating period of time where we're seeing the RSN model, if not on its last legs, in, real, in a really challenged place. So the NBA with this season and next on its current deal 
has the opportunity, if it chose, in, beginning with the 2025-2026 season, to do something different from what they've done before, where you could have some, you know, you could have the licensing potentially of local regional rights as well. That's open to them, too. You know, uh, you make obviously some excellent points, both of you, about uh, really the stakes of this deal. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about the competition. ESPN and TNT have been it for the NBA now uh, for more than 20 years. Uh, and uh, the expectation is that that will not be the case going forward. Even if they keep the rights, they're going to have a third, maybe a fourth, maybe a fifth package of games. Uh now, I know you didn't want to kind of speculate on the price tag, but if you're thinking about what this deal is going to look like, how many partners do you see the NBA going with? Will it stick with three? Will it be ESPN and TNT? And then also a streamer, another broadcast network? What are your expectations on that front? Well, I, I, I'm i not sure that it matters. I mean, it, it's, you know, whether somebody has two partners or four partners doesn't change the the character of their product um you know it's it's probably the case that more partners given what's going on economically will be you know appropriate and necessary um there there's no question in my mind that the nba's value as a programming packager has materially increased and uh, that gets reflected in in the deals, both in terms of of the amount for each and the number of them. I think there is, I think there is room. I mean, if we look at at the historical approach of the NBA, um, it has been to have fewer partners. Um, you know, you have to go back to before 1982. I'm sorry, 1984. Uh, to a to a time when both USA and ESPN and CBS all had rights. So so the NBA has been in a you know what we would call a less is more. In other words, you know having fewer partners is better mode. It, it just may not be that that works anymore in you know in a more constrained environment where you know the the various entertainment, companies that have traditionally bought rights um you know aren't as flush and aren't growing the same way um and at the same time you've got the the tech companies that uh, are looking for how best to to move forward and you know john and i talk all the time about the tech companies and and people make you know jump to the conclusion that they'll be you know that they have the ability to pay huge numbers and that's true um, but none of them has to pay big numbers because they don't need the content necessarily for their survival. Um, you know, that's different when you're in the linear television business. You've got to have content that will bring people in and keep them watching and keep them subscribing. Um, you know, if you're Apple, your business is selling phones and services. It's not necessarily sports, though sports is a very nice thing to add on especially when you've uh, you know made as many movies as you can and uh, you're looking to broaden your horizons you know they've done music they've done news um it makes sense you know they've done their mls and it would make sense for them to do more um but they don't have to do that and that that goes for the other guys too i mean the amazon you know has has done an amazing job of doing retail um and and everything beyond retail is nice to have isn't necessarily need to have um so i think it's the the permutations here are substantial there there are a lot of different possibilities of how this could play out and so i'm a, i'm at least smart enough to know that that putting all my eggs into one particular basket okay well you know youtube is going to be the new partner i'm i'm not here to say that i just think that there are a variety of different possibilities. Um, I personally would be surprised if if Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery don't maintain an NBA relationship, because incumbency has, um, you know, is, is a very special thing, and the NBA has been one to maintain its relationships 
over a very long term. But at the same time, I do expect there to be, uh, you know, at least one addition. I just would add, you know, to the point that Ed made originally, it's harder and harder to source audience. So nowadays, you need more partners, not only to get to the number that people talk about, I think you need more partners to reach the different audiences that you need to grow a sport. Ed and I were in Vegas a couple of weeks ago for the in-season tournament semis and finals. And one thing that got my attention was one of the sponsors was Threads, the, the Facebook uh, ex-Twitter clone. And they were there because they think that NBA basketball is appealing to their audience and what they're trying to build in terms of real-time information. I, 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 happen, to, I happen to agree with them. Um, the other point I'd make is, um, and Ed talks about this a lot, the last NBA deal, I believe, is like a 12-year deal. And, um, and typically what happens nine. in these deals, it's a nine-year deal, I apologize. But typically what happens is there's a reset in the first year and so we tend to look at it, okay, what is the rights holder getting for the very last year of a deal? And then what does it get for the first year of the new deal? But then you tend to see cost of living type increases subsequently. So people are sometimes astounded by the size of the, of the new deal, but it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of in keeping with the fact that the previous deal operates within a band for a long time, especially on a long-term deal. So I, I tend to think that the NBA, that there's not a formula. People say to me, well, do, don't you think there'll be a streaming deal? I don't think it's formulaic like that. I think the incumbents will stay in, but then there are going to be other partners, I think plural, and there could wind up being someone to work with NBA League Pass. There could be the Netflix thing thing that I mentioned. There could be Amazon continuing to have a Thursday night franchise after NFL ends. As we mentioned before, we believe Comcast and NBC won in. NBC did a really distinguished job um, with the NBA over 12 years, including when Ed and I worked together there. John, you know, I guess the other side of the argument when you talk about these uh multiple partners in the new NBA deal, you know, expanding to four, possibly even five uh, partners total, is that you run the risk of alienating fans. While you might actually increase reach, your fans might just check out because it's harder to find the games. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it takes more effort on their part. Do you see this as a risk coming into the, this new set of deals? I do. I also think that the leadership at the NBA feels and understands the same way you do. It wouldn't shock me at all that the NBA app would be a front door to get to everything and maybe something structured that way. Um, the NBA was an investor in Buzzer, which went away, but the idea of other types of ways of making content available, they could be looking at that. I have a friend who's an Arsenal fan who's complaining that he had to subscribe to seven different services to get all the Arsenal games. Clearly, that's not that's that's not going to make sense long term. So um, this is a very real issue. Uh, I suspect I don't I don't know how it will play out with the NBA, but I think the fragmentation of sports rights is likely to get worse before it gets better. It's not fan friendly and it's and Drew to your point, it's a real issue. I would I would add that, you know, it's an issue across sports now that, you know, every major league, uh, and we just recently saw the addition of NASCAR, um uh now has an exclusive streaming package. And so that necessitates people being able to find things and it's you know like oh, okay it's thursday night okay that means that amazon has the nfl game it's not on espn which is on monday night or well in abc sometimes and you know it's it's gotten certainly very confusing and i think i think there's a business opportunity in figuring out how to make 
this work much better. Um, you know, ESPN has been rumored to be interested in in being the solution. There may be a third party that becomes the solution. Um, but but ultimately, uh, you know, fans will gravitate towards something which which makes their lives easier. And of course, it is incumbent upon the properties to let fans know where the the, the content is. Um, I'd also make the point that I would not expect all different forms of content that leagues make available to be simply about games. I think that's uh, also a little bit of a dated notion. Um, you know, younger fans are much more likely to be interested in highlights or in in a in simply a smaller form factor. Uh, something snackable. Um, we're 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 in a in a world where you know different platforms are better for different things. It's not all the same, you know, the same thing. And and so you can imagine being, say, in a Twitch environment. You know, you've got fans who are who are 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 uh, consuming different uh, things at the same time. You know, it's not. It it may be a two screen or three screen experience, but the Twitch consumers are probably doing a different set of things than, say, you know, the TikTok consumers, um, and that's probably something different from from what the traditional MVPD cable and satellite folks are doing. Um, you know, we've taken note, for example, that and there's been a lot of attention paid to Amazon now uh, delivering a younger audience for its NFL games. I mean, there's also a word of, word of caution here because we think that one of the reasons for that is because older viewers are less likely to find those games. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to go young. It's not great to lose a, a chunk of your audience. So that becomes the the solve for that that all of the leagues need to be working on how do we make sure that we grow the pie not shrink it you know to that point uh i find it very interesting with amazon you're seeing a very large increase in viewership this year for amazon for thursday night football games despite the fact that the schedule is not necessarily dramatically better it's the same time slots there's there's no obvious reason what I've noticed is that the overall viewership is up by a greater amount than the demographics of 18 to 49 and 18 to 34. So do you see that as maybe being a circumstance where that older audience that you're talking about that may have dropped off of those Thursday night games is starting to get used to the idea of watching them on Amazon? I do. I mean, I think that that audiences need to be trained and it doesn't happen in an instant. Um, you know, we may all be focused on watching the very first game on Amazon, you know, a year plus ago. And, you know, how does it look? How's the production? Is there, you know, are there issues with uh, the streaming processes, given the volume, all those sorts of things. But, but you know, more casual fans or traditional fans, um, you know, they're used to seeing Sunday afternoon, afternoon games on Fox and, and CBS. And and they don't necessarily instantly change their behavior. So um, it's not surprising, A, that the audience is changing their behavior more slowly. But it's also, I think, a function of Amazon getting better at figuring out how to market this, how to let people know that the games are on, how to, how to you know, funnel people into the experience and producing a variety of different experiences um, that that is not just you know your your father's football game, and and so that brings in more people as well, and so I think it's a combination of all of these things. I I'm not surprised. Um, you know, of course, if you go back a couple of years, um, there was a time when when Fox was carrying Thursday night along with Amazon, and you know that was sort of the the best of both worlds in a way. Because you you had you know incremental audience coming from from Amazon, um, but 
you know, it it the the proof of contact concept was there, and so they were able to uh, to do an exclusive deal, and you know, and Fox didn't want to continue. They had they had enough to sell already, so um, all all of that made sense. Um, the the question as we turn back to the NBA is, you know, how do you better present the sport, both in terms of of coverage of the game, coverage of behind the scenes. Um, you know, interactive involvement by by fans, um, you know, via either social media or other platforms via the NBA app, as as John mentioned. I mean, there's just so many different ways that this can work. And on the one hand, you've got to you've got to get the the consumption and involvement numbers up um, for for any and all sports properties. but you need to do it in a way that it isn't at the expense of, of the value creation. I just would throw in too that, you know, although it seems like ancient history, we had all these Hollywood strikes last summer into the fall. So that really impacted any kind of new content available this fall. And I think there's a lot of people out, you know, looking to watch something and the live football game, you know, increasingly, was was more appealing than what else was available. Um, I would add one other thing to to that statement from John, which is recognize just how different the competitive environment is today from ten years ago. Okay, ten years ago, if you wanted to watch your favorite movie or your favorite TV series that wasn't currently in production, you know, you had to get in your car and go down to the video store to get a disc, okay? Now, today, uh, services like Netflix offer, you know, fans and non-fans so much content that is curated. And and I want to emphasize the curation. I mean, there is there are literally <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of hours of my favorite shows sitting on my Netflix queue right now. So when you ask me, you know, to devote two and a half, three, three and a half hours to watching an event, it's in the context of my alternatives, which aren't just, you know, live network television or cable television and, you know, aren't necessarily just other sports. It's competing now with the greatest content ever created in the history of Hollywood. That's that's the competitive set today. And and so that is that is why it is an accomplishment for Amazon's numbers to be up for for you know for the NBA to have generated substantially higher audiences for the in-season tournament. It's the same sort of thing. You're now competing against just a mountain of other content. You had mentioned, uh, you know, some of the non-live sports aspects of these media deals. And one of the things that made me think about was uh, NBA Inside Stuff. This was a, a significant promotional platform for the NBA, particularly with the young viewers that the league needed to sustain itself. That went away, not entirely after the ABC deal. ABC did have in Inside Stuff for a few years, but... By and large, the league has not had that kind of showcase. We're seeing now with Netflix and Drive to Survive a perhaps overstated, uh, you know, driver of interest in 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 that sport. Do you see these types of things? And also, I I'd be I would be remiss if I didn't mention the NFL's outreach on Nickelodeon with their slime cast and their slime time live. Um, do you see this as being a big part of the, the the future of these deals? I mean, not necessarily even specifically the drive to survive, but the outreach to younger demos. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, I just uh, Ed used the word interactivity before. To me, the things that are going to be successful going forward are going to enable younger viewers to be able to do something while they're watching the broadcast. I'm perfectly happy. I can't speak for Ed, but I'm perfectly happy to sit on my couch for two and a half hours and watch an NBA game, but my children aren't. 
You know, my children will come and watch smaller segments. They'll always have a device with them. So experiences that enable you somehow to participate in the thing, betting, fantasy games, daily fantasy games are examples. You know, I thought that the Nickelodeon Super Bowl is a tour de force. I thought what Disney and Pixar and the NFL did together with the with the uh, London football game was amazing technically, but I couldn't imagine anybody sitting there for more than five to 10 minutes and just watching, you know, a simulation. So the, the entities to me that are going to be the big winners are going to have something else going on. Just a small example. I have a friend who has an old fashioned football pool where he and his friends pick winners of the NFL games and they all they all now you know you know you know watch watch the red zone on Sunday and that's an example of okay you can watch this and you also have some sort of other activity going on that's easy to follow and fun and and is a social activity i expect to see more and more of those and leagues and other entities help organize them and you you mentioned earlier uh, you brought up how ESPN is looking to kind of become this portal into live sports where to kind of, you know, combat fragmentation. Recently this week, we saw the Wall Street Journal report about Amazon and Diamond Sports with Amazon wanting to uh, perhaps form a strategic partnership with Diamond, uh, bringing those Bali sports branded RSNs onto Amazon Prime. That got me thinking that Amazon might actually potentially be a better fit to be that sort of rebundling portal that you talk about. Um, this is obviously a topic that you guys probably pay a lot of attention to as consultants. Do you see any other players in that, in that space who could possibly be that, that portal for the fan? Well, I, I think it is perfectly logical for an entity like ESPN, which, you know, which means sports and has the ESPN app um, uh, to, to be a candidate. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if third parties um, get involved. I, I'm, I'm not sure it's quite in the wheelhouse of Amazon. I mean, they could do it if they wanted to, I suppose, but um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily their, their uh, you know, their, their first choice. Um, but, you know, you think about entities in the information business and, you know, first and foremost, I think of Google, you know, think about the information that Google has um, about, you know, everything that you're interested in and and what they could potentially do. You know, I, I want somebody to figure out a way of when I'm ready to consume uh, sports. Um, to to basically automatically serve what I'm most interested in in watching at any given time. And you know, it wouldn't take a great deal of time to build that database. Um, you know, if you watch the, you know, if you note that I watch Lakers games and I I watch, you know, UCLA football and um, you know, and I like to root against the Boston Celtics, um you know, you you can. It wouldn't take a great deal of time for you to figure out the you know what I should be served, and you know John has his own set of preferences. Um, you know, and and you know there's a Heisman Trophy candidate uh, that that that's playing on a Saturday evening. You know, I'd like to 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 see, you know, see what that guy looks like, and you know it and it goes on and on. But you know that's. You know, if you think about the old television environment, one of the things that TV was was really never really good at doing was was curating television for you. You know, there was either a slow moving crawl that, you know, took forever to scroll through 36 going on 100 channels, um, you know, not a very user friendly um, uh, process. Um, clearly. The more modern guides are still, you know, a, a you know, a maze of of 
of scanning to the right and scanning up and scanning down and wearing out your remote control. Um, you know, now fans have have search functions that they didn't used to have um, and, you know, have learned where to find certain things, you know, by virtue of being, um, you know, 40 years of TNT being the a home of the NBA, um, you know, NBA fans know where to find TNT. There's some real value to that. But as things get more scattered, there's going to be more of a premium on being able to find where, say, Thursday night is if it isn't on TNT. And it may very well continue to be on TNT for that reason. We'll we'll have to see. Um, you know, and, and you get into playoff time and it's a different set of, of calculations, you know. Who wants to see, uh, you know, first round playoff game versus, say, you know, early early season baseball? Um, you know, uh, they're they're different interests in within a household. Um, the other point I would make that that relates to all of this is, I, I think the process of becoming a fan is a different process than it used to be. You know, I distinctly remember growing up uh, and watching sports with my dad. I went to UCLA games with my dad at a, at a young age. And so I maintained my UCLA fandom as a result. And um, that was a, a vital part of my relationship with my dad. And I ended up going to school there uh, probably uh, in part because of all of that uh, association. And when you don't have, you know, the the parent and child inter interaction, when, you know, it's more about your friends on social media or who you're playing video games with, it's a different set of indoctrination. And that may lead you in a different place. And so, you know, there's a lot changing. It's not just what network is carrying what sport or uh, what format is available in the various multicasts? It's it's literally the kinds of fans are changing. Drew, I said last yeah. month in the SBJ SSRS research group uh, ha had a piece, and they said that today two thirds of the U.S. has a paid television subscription at home. That's down from seventy five percent five years ago and eighty five percent a decade ago. And the key point they made is that access for young kids to live sports in the home is much diminished. Um, Ed and I have been spending a lot of time talking about fast channels because fast channels represent as, okay, almost everybody has a device in their home. Almost everybody has a sufficiently fast connection to see video on a device. And it could be that utilizing fast channels in the future is going to be one way that sports can get visibility to kids. And if you don't build that fan base in an environment where kids are growing up with unlimited supply of video, video games, any number of other things, you're playing with fire, you know, if you're running a sports enterprise. The other thing I would mention is, you know, we, we haven't really talked about it directly, but but the whole world of broadcasting is changing, especially for sports. So, for example, you know, we saw in the last year the, the CW, which had been historically a, a network serving kind of young adults, um, uh, uh, go for sports in a big way, first with, with golf. Um, and then they broaden it from there with their Xfinity package and, um, you know, and they're carrying college sports now as well. Um, I think that, um, you know, broadcast, whether it's on a national basis uh, or on a local basis uh, in, in Phoenix, in Vegas, in, in Utah, all cases where local broadcasters are coming back in now recognizing the change in the broadcast environment. It used to be, if you put a game on a broadcast station, you are almost guaranteed a pretty good rating because 
people naturally tuned to to television stations. There was a large, um, you know, lead-in audience that came from that. Well, what's changed is the 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 base audience that is delivered by broadcast is a small fraction of what it used to be. So you can't necessarily expect that just putting a game on a broadcast channel is going to instantly deliver large audience. You've got to work at, at, at getting the word out because the promotional time isn't as valuable. Not as many people are watching that. Um, and a large number of households, and it may be, you know, a third, aren't even, you know, subscribed either via cable or satellite or via an antenna. They're not even sampling those stations. So broadcast does have the potential of le reaching a very, very large audience, um, but that doesn't mean it necessarily will in all cases. So we've got, you know, that, that uh, nuance of change to be concerned with as well. I'll pose this question to both of you. You guys have talked a lot about, you know, the uptake of younger viewers and, and growing sports that way. Do you both see live sports as a growth enterprise or is it a mature industry now? Is it is is growth kind of a thing of the past? Uh, I think it's very much a growth enterprise uh, and it may be growing in unexpected ways. And, and the first example I will give you is women's sports. I mean, women's sports, we just we just saw, you know, volleyball ratings, um, you know, eclipse previous um, benchmarks. Um, we, we saw it with women's basketball last spring with the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, there's there's a large amount of, of sports programming that hasn't historically seen large audiences. And, you know, there's, we talked earlier about delays in people coming around to various things. Well, you know, it, it can easily be 25 or 50 years to get to a point where where women's sports has the same sort of uh, interest level that men's sports have traditionally. But but there's there's definitely upside there. And also think about all the various new sports, you know, the, you know, cornhole becomes a big deal during COVID, you know, not that many people had heard of it, but, but now it's on the map and, and pickleball, you know, pickleball is now a big deal amongst the people. Well, whether that becomes a real spectator sport and a, a real view a TV sport remains to be seen, but uh, I, I'm I'm very bullish on the growth of uh, of sports in general. I um I agree. When you just had this expression, you know, if you'd watch a football game and one of the teams was really conservative, you'd say you say, "Wow, does that team have a playbook?" And uh, maybe an antiquated expression, you know. But you need a playbook today. I just would say, Drew, if you just just look at there's the impact of streaming. Okay, you know, international soccer international football has taken off and it's the answer is streaming look at now all of a sudden you get all these epl matches all these la liga matches all these all these Serie A matches all these bundesliga matches all available at at different times um the um the icc cricket was was broadcast for free on mobile uh this year and drew 59 million concurrent users. Everybody here went crazy when Amazon got 15 million concurrent for the Dallas-Seattle game. They almost got four times that for cricket, and that's available every place on earth. So um, we believe that sports is going to take a bigger and bigger role, and that it's because it is a growth engine. But how that growth manifests itself is going to be a factor of the creativity, ingenuity, hard work of different rights holders that are not created equal. If you go back to the same playbook, you may wind up being disappointed. Women's sports is growing in part because they never had the sort of resources or support before. So they had to, they had to do things differently. Uh, you know, and even when we see breakthroughs. You know, listen, I, you know, 
the the women's basketball championship between LSU and Iowa, uh, Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark drew a 9.9 rating on a Sunday afternoon uh, on ABC. But they could have put that game on in prime time and done a 12. Okay. You know, like, you know, you know, they were, they wanted to make sure that they had time to get on American Idol. But I think we'd make the point that that LSU-Iowa game was bigger than American Idol. Maybe people don't recognize that yet, but they will. So these things are coming. Um, but you're also in, a, in an incredibly competitive environment. I look at you two guys, and the, the video options that you've grown up with dwarf the video options that Ed and I grew up in, and they affect your worldview. So to crack into your viewing, things have to be better in order to do that because there's a, there's an unlimited supply of interesting things to watch. Beyond that, I think we would be being myopic if we jump to the conclusion that all of these changes only increase universally the value of, of, of all sports. I think there will be winners and losers. I mean, there will be those that that seize the moment, figure out how to make their their product uh, accessible and addressed to particular uh, smaller audiences. I mean, it used to be the case that you produced one feed for everyone, and it was a you know it was a homogeneous product that you know, wasn't designed to offend anyone. And, you know, it's sort of like sitcoms from the 70s or maybe even the 60s and 50s. Um, uh, nowadays, audiences expect to be catered to. And there will be sports properties that do a great job of catering to audiences, of developing them, of serving them, of giving them reinforcements, of bringing more people uh, to whatever the viewing screen is. Um, and there are going to be those that don't. And, you know, there's a, there is some history here. If we go back in time, you know, horse racing, for example, used to be huge. And it's sort of amazing to me in an age where gambling has been growing in interest that, you know, horse racing hasn't really grown substantially in interest. Um, boxing used to be a huge deal and you know boxing without a lot of of centralized leadership has fallen prey to the ufc which came up with a better way of 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 packaging it and promoting it and selling it um bowling used to be a big deal on network tv if you can believe it i mean we're going back a few years but but abc used to feature bowling i think it was on saturday afternoons and there was a there were the ratings that bowling got dwarf um, most anything that is on today outside of major events and the NFL. And so, um, you know, you can lose if you don't play your cards right. And and there will be some losers. It's it's too early to say who they will be, but uh, you got to watch for that as well. I mean, we saw the Pac-12 this summer, you know, like, you know, it's uh, we're in a different environment now. I did want to switch gears a little bit and talk. Uh, it's obviously a related topic, but talk about the year that was for Disney and Bob Iger, uh, because you talked about uh, Ed earlier about, you know, how things are changing on broadcast television. There was a little window this year where it seemed like Disney might seriously consider selling off its uh, linear networks, including ABC. Very quickly, Bob Iger has backed off of that uh, publicly. I'm curious, and either of you can can answer this, whether you think there was actually any real, uh, you know, consideration of selling off ABC by Disney, and if you think that that's something that will be going forward a non-starter for them because of how important it is to ESPN. Um, well, let me start by saying, you know. Uh, both uh, Bob Iger is a friend of John and of mine, so we're 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 with that caveat. We'll try to answer your question, not uh, 
not that he's calling us for uh, for daily advice but uh but we're fans um uh i think that the abc discussion was a trial balloon um i do believe that um the, that they're more likely to dispose of some cable assets um and in fact we saw in the course of the charter negotiation that you know disney was prepared to shutter certain cable assets um you know remember uh they acquired a whole bunch of networks from fox and had many of their own and still do so it becomes a question of kind of weeding it down to its essence um you have a bunch of programming expense and operational expenses associated with with many networks that have very very low license fees and and probably even smaller viewership um so you know i think that that it was in that context that that the abc thing was floated um and and i think it got a lot of attention but i but i tend to agree that you know <laughs> abc is a really valuable asset uh particularly in partnership with espn it's you know think of it as a barker channel for espn um and and so as a companion i mean we 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 used to think of cable networks as being the companions but in this particular context i think the broadcast network is but you know also as you saw this fall and this is also related to the hollywood strikes you know they made a deal with the nfl to put mo most monday night football games on abc although that was a one-year deal i have trouble imagining that that's not going to continue for a, a, any number of reasons. So I just think um, um, Bob, you know, Bob is an exceptional CEO, certainly, certainly, uh, you know, was renowned during my period of time at the company. He comes back and it's a different environment and more challenging. And they're in the process, they have a lot of bright people there, the process of, of trying to figure it out and they have complicated decisions to make. Okay, you, you know, you stay in the ESPN business. How do you do that? Do you go over the top? Do you do you become more of an aggregator? Do you spin it out? These are all these are all hard and challenging, challenging decisions to make. But John, I just think to your point, ABC is strategically really important to ESPN. So I I I struggle to see a scenario where you're really going to be big in sports, but you're going to divest ABC because rights holders want and need that exposure. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I'm curious about, you mentioned ESPN going over the top. There's a, there's a lot of expectation of big change in this industry, but I suspect that a lot of what we're going to see are half measures. So ESPN will be over the top, but it will still be distributed through cable, right? Uh, you know, the RSNs are going to be going to streaming, but they'll still be owned by Diamond. It's just that Amazon's going to invest and distribute them. Do you see this being a circumstance where there will be radical change, but for someone who wants to continue going through the ecosystem that's been established for the past 40, 50 years, they'll be able to do so? I mean, I think, and this is not just ESPN, I think this is any of these media companies that have big investments in pay television, that they want to keep that healthy and robust for as long as they can. I think the charter deal was an example of, you know, both networks and distributors, you know, in a moment of time deciding, okay, maybe we can reinvest and try to make this more valuable. If, if ESPN offers an over-the-top alternative, then it risks accelerating the decline in pay television where it is the chief beneficiary. So people ask me like, well, when is that going to happen? And I think they will take their time on that. I don't, I, I, I don't think that they're in a rush. Also, you know, we're, we've come from a place where everybody had only one choice of how they get their TV channels to now where you're going to have multiple choices. And I don't think you want to alienate a certain set of people who want to get what they want to get. 
today at least, the pay television solution for sports is far superior than any other that exists. So I, 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 John, uh, I don't know if I agree with you on the regionals because if the, if the Amazon discussions fall through, then diamond remains in a precarious place. You know, it seems to me like the leagues are sort of doing placeholders. Let's get through this season. Let's get through next season. I'm, I'm not positive. I'm not positive that local and regional broadcasting in, in a world of the internet where you can get anything you want is necessarily here to stay. But I do think getting your channels in a variety of ways, so long as they can keep everybody healthy, is is likely to happen and likely to happen for a while. The other thing that I throw out there is ESPN has really significant rights obligations and expense both from its linear channels and also from ESPN Plus. ESPN Plus has UFC. It has NHL Center Ice. It has La Liga and Bundesliga and the PGA Tour Thursday, Friday. Putting those two things together and making it affordable is is not an easy calculation. So they may have to give some thought to, okay, what does the future look like? Are we going to continue on these sort of parallel paths where there is significant separate rights expense in these two services? If we should combine them and just offer one, then, you know, do we need everything that we've already purchased and does everything we've already purchased make it prohibitively expensive? These are a bunch of the discussions that I think that they're having. Yeah, I mean, John, John's exactly right. I mean, th- this is a complex, this, this is three-dimensional chess to, to figure it out the right way. And, and there isn't just one, one answer. Um, I, would, I would submit in addition that it's important to look at this from the fans' perspective and you know, How about as that? Uh, yeah <laughs> i'm the one um if we if we think about what does the typical sports fan want the typical sports fan wants access to pretty much everything and they want to be able to decide night by night what it is they're going to watch and right now the only place you get that is either through cable, satellite, or a virtual MVPD. Um, Now, the problem is, increasingly, you've got, say, the Thursday night Amazon package, and you've got, you know, now mid-summer NASCAR events. And, um, you you know, you're going to have to depart from that. So, um, you know, that's going to eat away at the strength of uh, of the cable satellite package for fans. And so there may very well become a point where fans say, okay, I'm spending, say, $80 a month for my cable, and there's you know more there than I can really consume. Um, if I can get my ESPN over the top, and I can get my Fox, and I can get my, my Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, and maybe my RSN, maybe that's all I really care about. And and that becomes the critical mass where they can become cord cutters too. Um, now, that's not in the interests of, of, of many of these organizations, so they're not really looking to hasten that. But that's what we're, you know, as I've said before, you've got to think about what's the consumer proposition. You know, there isn't yet, a way of getting all your sports by in in a single subscription. Um, you know, it used to be cable. It's starting not to be cable. And so, you know, will there be replicated, um, you know, that kind of service where, you know, it's all packaged together, maybe without the entertainment content? Or because cable subscriptions are sold to households, um, you know, most households aren't um aren't sports only households so maybe you need the entertainment content as well but now you're back to cable <laughs> so it's it's um you know it's a complicated process but i do think that 
um, you, you do need to consider what, you know, what the benefits of packaging are. And, and that's what cable has always been great at. It's, you know, the big bundle provided you everything. Um, will there be a big bundle that provides you everything or a smaller bundle at a better price that provides you everything via streaming? All right. And I'll get you both out of here on one last question. Uh, we talked obviously about Iger and the ABC aspect. The other big headline out of uh, that uh, infamous now, I guess, semi-infamous CNBC interview over the summer that uh, that has created all the news cycles about Disney since the strategic partnership for ESPN. And uh, there's been a lot of seemingly conflicting reporting on that. Some outlets are saying it'll be a league. It'll be a a a, a a digital partner, it'll be a, a, a telecom company, uh, maybe it'll be two out of the three. Uh, I'm curious for your insights, when you think about uh, not necessarily what ESPN will do, but what you believe the ideal strategic partner would be for ESPN. I'll take a quick stab at this. Um, I, and, uh, you know, I know what you know, but I'm skeptical about sports leagues or rights holders investing because I think the expectation would be, okay, well, then we'll provide a better rate for future for future rights packages. And I just don't see that happening in part because these leagues run on the increases. Half of it tends to go to the players. It's It's very, very complicated. They all want... ESPN to be healthy for any number of reasons, but they also want a competitive marketplace. I do think that to where Ed started, we're in an environment where you can't reach everybody through one channel. As great as ESPN is, as great as a combination of ESPN and ABC and all of ESPN's digital channels and their presence on other social media networks, you're still not reaching all sports fans. So potentially if they could tie together with another technology company that could supplement and provide broader and different reach, that might be really interesting. Just to conclude the thought, um, the ESPN business is complicated and it's tied into a traditional distribution system. ESPN is part of the Walt Disney Company, where there's 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 an interrelation with separate companies, whether it's ABC or Disney, etc. So it's complicated, and making sure that that's a win for the other party who would invest in ESPN. These again are complicated conversations, but I see more of a potential for a tech company to get involved than say a sports league that's my initial feeling from outside the 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 uh the situation yeah i i would agree with john i think that that the sports league angle is really problematic um and and frankly, sports leagues, at least the, the sports leagues that would make enough of a difference for ESPN are accustomed to being paid handsomely. And and there's little reason to think that they would want to be investors when they're used to being recipients. Um, beyond that, I think that, um, you know, you have to ask yourself, what is it that ESPN needs that it doesn't already have? It has relationships for programming. It has excellent relationships on the programming side. It has excellent relationships on the advertising side. It is well positioned with its app and its website on the digital side to an extent, but obviously there are a lot more digital uh, parties out there that could have an association. Um, the 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 challenge is also beyond the investment. It's it's who's not going to be, you know, a problematic partner for Disney and, and ESPN. Um, you know, we saw uh, 
ESPN finally getting into betting recently. And, you know, that was something that they had had uh, resisted doing for quite a long time. You know, is this something that's consistent with the Disney brand, for example? You know, are we going to make an association with Penn and is it going to cost us relationship with DraftKings and others? Um, you know, th finding finding the sweet spot of somebody who is motivated enough to want to come in brings something more than just money, because obviously ESPN could do something with private equity or something like that. But but that doesn't make ESPN better necessarily. So it, you're you're talking about in on the one hand a large number of potential parties, but but not very many, I suspect that check enough boxes that that it's going to make sense to do. Now, having said that, there are a lot of entities out there that would have an interest in in what ESPN is and has achieved. And so I can uh, I can see it happening. Um, it's just hard to know. There, it's not like, you know, a very short list of of possibilities. It's a it's a broad list of possibilities. And it's just it's hard to um, it's hard to anticipate exactly who the party or parties would be. Um, so something interesting to watch going forward. All right. Well, that was a very long, detailed conversation. I really appreciate <laughs> your insights, both of you. Uh, I know uh, for for listeners, this is a little inside baseball, but I hope it's nonetheless really valuable because uh, these are. Uh, two uh, uh, two folks who know this stuff inside and out. So if you really want to know what's going on, uh, this is a, 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 as good a discussion as uh, I like to think, as good a discussion as you'll hear anywhere on it. So thank you to both of you for your time, for going along. I know it's been over an hour. Uh, I really appreciate it. Happy thank holidays, you, John. John and Drew. All right. Well, that'll do it for 2023 on the SMW podcast. Uh, thank you to everyone who has listened to this podcast or otherwise read my work. Uh, it has been something I'm very grateful for to have people uh, interested in hearing what I think about the industry. And uh, thank you to everybody uh, from the commenters to the listeners uh, and uh, certainly to the industry professionals who have uh, graced my podcast with their presence this year or otherwise just promoted the things that I'm writing. And of course, thank you to Drew as well for coming in this year uh, and uh, doing the work that he's done. And I'd even thank, uh, I'd even thank uh, my old host, uh, my old co-host, TJ. Uh, TJ and I don't work together, uh, obviously, now, but uh, if not for TJ encouraging me to start a podcast, I would not have ever started a podcast. And uh, even though everybody has a podcast now, I'm glad that I've got one. It gives me an opportunity to talk to some interesting folks and uh, another uh, another avenue to uh, get my uh, views across. So thank you to TJ as well. All right. That'll do it for 2023. We'll see you back here in 2024 for more sports media talk.